Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob. Uh, thank you for listening. We have on this site nearly 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. You can now go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and download the Church One app for sermon audio, Church One. Enter Hackberry House, I hope, as your choice of broadcasters, and then go to my books on Amazon.com, contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. Reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon, the English evangelical pastor and writer who died in 1892. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 2, and it's number 68, make it number 66, and next time we will do number 67, which is really a part of the same sermon. It's a very long one, and so we won't try to do all of it today. It's about the resurrection of the dead. It was delivered Sunday morning, February 17, 1856, at the New Park Street Chapel, Southwark. His text is Acts 24.15, where it says, There shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Reflecting the other day upon the sad state of the churches at the present moment, I was led to look back to apostolic times and to consider wherein the preaching of the present day differed from the preaching of the apostles. I remarked the vast difference in their style and from the, the set and formal oratory of the present age. Uh, I remarked that the apostles did not take a text when they preached, nor did they confine themselves to one subject, much less to any place of worship. But I find that they stood up in any place and declared from the fullness of their heart what they knew of Jesus Christ. But the main difference I observed was in the subjects of their preaching. Surprised I was when I discovered uh, that the very staple of the preaching of the apostles was the resurrection of the dead. I, I found myself to have been um, preaching the doctrine of the grace of God, to have been upholding free election, to have been leading the people of God as well as I was enabled into the deep things of his word. But I was surprised to find that I had not been copying the apostolic fashion half as nearly as I might have done. The apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. It appears that the Alpha and the Omega of their gospel was the testimony that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures. When they chose another apostle in the room of Judas, who had become apostate, that's in Acts 1.22. They said, one must be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection, so that the very office of an apostle was to be a witness of the resurrection, and well did they fulfill their office. When Peter stood up before the multitude, he declared unto them that David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. When Peter and John were taken before the council, the great cause of their arrest was that the rulers were grieved because they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. When they were set free after having been examined, it is said with great power 
gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, Acts 4.33. It was this which stirred the curiosity of the Athenians when Paul preached among them. They said he seems to be a, a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And this moved the laughter of the Areopagites, for when he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again of this matter. Truly did Paul say when he stood before the council of the Pharisees and Sadducees, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And equally true did he constantly assert, if Christ be not risen from the dead, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain and you are yet in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the righteous is a doctrine which we believe, but which we too seldom preach or care to read about. Though I have inquired of several booksellers for a book specially upon the subject of the resurrection, I have not yet been able to purchase one of, of any sort whatever. And when I turn to Dr. Owen's works, which are a most invaluable storehouse of divine knowledge containing much that is valuable on almost every subject, I could find even there scarcely more than the slightest mention of the resurrection. It has been set down as a well-known truth and therefore has never been discussed. Heresies have not risen up respecting it. It would almost have been a mercy if there had been, for whenever a truth is contested by heretics, the Orthodox fight strongly for it, and the pulpit resounds with it every day. I am persuaded, however, that there is much power in this doctrine, and if I preach it this morning, you will see that God will own the apostolic preaching, and there will be conversions. I intend putting it to the test now to see whether there be not something which we cannot perceive at present in the resurrection of the dead, which is capable of moving the hearts of men and bringing them into subjection to the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are uh, very few Christians who believe the resurrection of the dead. Now, you may be surprised to hear that, but I should not wonder if I had discovered that you yourself have doubts on the subject. By the resurrection of the dead is meant something very different from the immortality of the soul that, that every Christian believes in, Therein is only on a, a level with the heathen, who believes it too. Now, the light of nature is sufficient to tell us that the soul is immortal, so that the infidel who doubts it is a worse fool even than a heathen. Uh, for he, before revelation was given, had discovered it. There are some faint glimmerings in men of reason which teach that the soul is something so wonderful that it must endure forever. But the resurrection of the dead... It's quite another doctrine, dealing not with the soul, but with the body. The doctrine is that this actual body in which I now exist is to live with my soul. That not only is the vital spark of heavenly flame to burn in heaven, but the very censer in which the incense of my life does smoke is holy unto the Lord and is to be preserved forever. The spirit, everyone confesses, is eternal. But how many there are who deny that the bodies of men will actually start up from their graves at the great day? Many of you believe you will have a body in heaven, 
but you think it will be an airy, fantastic body instead of believing that it will be a body like this, flesh and blood. Well, not the same kind of flesh, for all flesh is not the same flesh. A solid, substantial body, even such as we have here. And there are yet fewer of you who believe that the wicked will have bodies in hell. For it is gaining ground everywhere that there are to be no positive torments for the damned in hell to affect their bodies, but that it is to be metaphorical fire, metaphorical brimstone, metaphorical chains, metaphorical torture. But if you were Christians as you profess to be, you would believe that every mortal man who ever existed shall not only live by the immortality of his soul, but his body shall live again, that the very flesh in which he now walks the earth is as eternal as the soul and shall exist forever. That is the peculiar doctrine of Christianity. The heathens never guessed or imagined such a thing, and consequently when Paul spoke of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, which proves that they understood him to speak of the resurrection of the body, for they would not have mocked had he only spoken of the immortality of the soul, that having been already proclaimed by Plato and Socrates and received with reverence. We're now about to preach that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. We shall consider first the resurrection of the just and secondly, the resurrection of the unjust. Okay, there shall be a resurrection of the just. The first proof I will offer of this is that it has been the constant and unvarying faith of the saints from the earliest periods of time. Abraham believed the resurrection of the dead, for it is said in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 19, that he accounted that God was able to raise up Isaac even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. I have no doubt that Joseph believed in the resurrection, for he gave commandment concerning his bones. Surely he would not have been so careful of his body if he had not believed that it should be raised from the dead. The patriarch Job was a firm believer in it, for he said in that oft-repeated text, Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. David believed it beyond the shadow of a doubt, for he sang of Christ, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Daniel believed it, for he said that many who sleep in the dust shall rise, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Souls do not sleep in the dust. Bodies do. It will do you good to turn to one or two passages and, and see what these holy men thought. For instance, in Isaiah twenty six nineteen, you read, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. We will offer no explanation here. The text is positive and sure. Let another prophet speak. Hosea 6. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. In the third day he will raise us up. 
and we shall live in his sight. Now this does not declare the resurrection, yet it uses it as a figure which it would not do were it not regarded as a settled truth. It is declared by Paul also in Hebrews 11.35 that such was the constant faith of the martyrs. For he says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. All those holy men and women who, during the time of the Maccabees, stood fast by their faith and endured the fire and sword and tortures unutterable, believed in the resurrection, and that resurrection stimulated them to give their bodies to the flames, not caring even for death, but believing that thereby they should attain to a blessed resurrection. But our Savior brought the resurrection to light in the most excellent manner, for he explicitly and frequently declared it. Marvel not, said he, at what I have said to you. Behold, the hour comes when they that are in their graves shall hear the voice of God. And again, the hour is coming when he will call the dead to judgment, and they shall stand before his throne. Indeed, throughout his preaching, there was one continued flow of firm belief and a public and positive declaration of the resurrection of the dead. I will not trouble you with any passages from the writings of the apostles. They abound therewith. In fact, Holy Scripture is so full of this doctrine that I marvel, brethren, that we should so soon have departed from the steadfastness of our faith and that it should be believed in many churches that the actual bodies of the saints will not live again, especially that the bodies of the wicked will not have a future existence. We maintain, as our text does, that uh, there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. A second proof we think we find in the translation of Enoch and Elijah to heaven. We read of two men who went to heaven in their bodies. It says Enoch was not, for God took him. And Elijah was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire. Neither of these men left his ashes in the grave. Neither left his body to be consumed by the worm. But both of them in their mortal frames, changed and glorified doubtless, ascended up on high. Now, those two were the pledge to us that all of us shall rise in the same manner. Would it be likely that two bright spirits would sit in heaven clothed in flesh while the rest of us were unclothed? Would it be at all reasonable that Enoch and Elijah should be the only saints who should have their bodies in heaven and that we should be there only in our souls, poor souls, longing to have our bodies again? No, our faith tells us that these two men, having safely gone to heaven, as, as John Bunyan has it, by a bridge that no one else trod, by which they were not under the necessity to wade the river. And we shall also rise from the flood, and our flesh shall not forever dwell with corruption. There is a remarkable passage in Jude where it speaks of Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil about the body of Moses and using no railing accusation. Now, this refers to the great doctrine of angels watching over the bones of the saints. Certainly, it tells us that the body of Moses was watched over by a great archangel. The devil thought to disturb that body, but Michael contended with him about it. Now, 
Would there be a contention about that body if it had been of no value? Would Michael contend for that, which was only to be the food of worms? Would he wrestle with the enemy for that which was to be scattered to the four winds of heaven, never to be united again into a new and goodlier fabric? No, assuredly not. From this we learn that an angel watches over every tomb. It is no fiction when on the marble we carve the cherubs with their wings. There are cherubs with outstretched wings over the head of the gravestones of all the righteous. Aye, and where the rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep, in some nook o'ergrown by nettles, there an angel stands night and day to watch each bone and guard each atom, that at the resurrection those bodies, with more glory than they had on earth, may start up to dwell forever with the Lord. The guardianship of the bodies of the saints by angels proves that they shall rise again from the dead. Yet further, the resurrections that have already taken place give us hope and confidence that there shall be a resurrection of all saints. Do you not remember that it is written, when Jesus rose from the dead, many of the saints who were in their graves rose and came into the city and appeared unto many? Have you not heard that Lazarus, though he had been dead three days, came from the grave at the word of Jesus? Have you never read how the daughter of Jairus awoke from the sleep of death when Jesus said, Talitha kumi? Have you never seen him at the gates of Nain, bidding that widow's son rise from the bier? Have you forgotten that Dorcas, who made garments for the poor, sat up and saw Peter after she had been dead? And do you not remember Eutychus, who fell from the third loft and was taken up dead, but who, at the prayer of Paul, was raised again? Does your not memory not roll back to the time when Elijah stretched himself upon a dead child, and the child breathed? and sneezed seven times, and his soul came to him. Or have you not read that when they buried a man, as soon as he touched the prophet's bones, he rose again to life? These are pledges of the resurrection, a few specimens, a few chance gems flung into the world to tell us how God's hand is full, how full God's hand is of resurrection jewels. He's given us proof that he's able to raise the dead by the resurrection of a few who afterwards were seen on earth by infallible witnesses. We must now, however, leave these things and refer you once more to the Holy Spirit by way of confirming the doctrine that the saints' bodies shall rise again. The chapter in which you will find one great proof is in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6, Verse 13, where it says, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So the body is the Lord's. Christ died not only to save my soul, but to save my body. It is said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. When Adam sinned, he lost his body and he lost his soul too. He was a lost man, lost altogether. And when Christ came to save his people, he came to save their bodies and their souls. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Is this body for the Lord, and, and shall death devour it? Is this body for the Lord, and, and shall winds scatter its particles far away where they shall never discover their fellows? No, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord shall have it. 
And God hath both raised up the Lord and will raise us up also by his own power. Now, look at the next verse. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Not merely is the soul a part of Christ, <clears throat> united to Christ, but the body is also. These hands, these feet, these eyes are members of Christ, if I be a child of God. I am one with him, and not merely as to my mind, but one with him as to this outward frame. The very body is taken into union. The golden chain which binds Christ to his people goes around the body and soul too. Did not the apostle say, they too shall be one flesh? This is a great mystery, he said, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5. They are one flesh. And Christ's people are not only one with him in spirit, but they are one flesh too. The flesh of man is united with the flesh of the God-man, and our bodies are members of Jesus Christ. Well, while the head lives, the body cannot die. And while Jesus lives, the members cannot perish. Further, the apostle says in the 19th verse, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Now, this body, he says, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And where the Holy Ghost dwells in a body, he not only sanctifies it, but renders it eternal. The temple of the Holy Ghost is as eternal as the Holy Ghost. You may demolish other temples, and they're gods too, but the Holy Ghost cannot die, nor can his temple perish. Shall this body which has once had the Holy Ghost in it be always food for worms? Shall it never be seen more, but be like the dry bones of the valley? No, the dry bones shall live, and the temple of the Holy Ghost shall be built up again. Though the legs, the pillars of that temple fall, though the eyes, the windows of it be darkened, and those that look out of them see no more, yet God shall rebuild this fabric, relight the eyes, restore its pillars, and regild it with beauty. Yea, this mortal shall put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruption. But the master argument with which we close our proof is that Christ rose from the dead, and verily his people shall. The chapter which we read at the commencement of the service is proof to a de demonstration that if Christ rose from the dead, all his people must, and that if there be no resurrection, then is Christ not risen. But I will not long dwell on this proof, because I know you all feel its power. There is no need for me to bring it out clearly. As Christ actually rose from the dead, flesh and blood, so shall we. Christ was not a spirit when he rose from the dead. His body could be touched. Did not Thomas put his hand into his side? And did not Christ say, Handle me and see? A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And if we are to rise as Christ did, and we are taught so, then we shall rise in our bodies, not spirits, not fine aerial things made of I know not what, some very refined and elastic substance, but as, but as the Lord our Savior rose, so all his followers must. We shall rise in our flesh, though all flesh is not the same flesh. 
We shall rise in our bodies, though all bodies are not the same bodies. And we shall rise in glory, though all glories are not the same glories. There is one flesh of man and another of beast. There is one flesh of this body, another flesh of the heavenly body. There is one body for the soul here and another body for the spirit up there. And yet it shall be the same body that will rise again from the grave. The same, I say, in identity, though not in glory or in adaptation. I come now to some practical thoughts from this doctrine before I go to the other. My brethren, when thoughts of comfort there are in this doctrine, what, uh, what thoughts indeed and that the dead shall rise again? Some of us have this week been standing by a grave. One of our brethren, who long served his master in our midst, was placed in the tomb. Now he was a man valiant for the truth, indefatigable in labor, self-denying in duty, always prepared to follow his Lord and to the utmost of his ability, serviceable to the church. Now, there were tears shed there. Do you know what they were about? I tell you, there was not a solitary tear shed about his soul. (laughs) The doctrine of the immortality of the soul was not required to give us comfort, for we know it well. We were perfectly assured that he had ascended to heaven. The burial service used in the Church of England most wisely offers us no comfort concerning the soul of the departed believer, since that is in bliss. But it cheers us by reminding us of the promised resurrection for the body. And when I speak concerning the dead, it is not to give comfort as to the soul, but as to the body. And this doctrine of the resurrection has comfort for the mourners in regard to the buried mortality You do not weep because your father, brother, wife, husband has ascended to heaven. You would be cruel to weep about that. None of you weep because your dear mother is before the throne, but you weep because her body is in the grave, because those eyes can no more smile on you, because those hands cannot caress you, because those sweet lips cannot speak melodious notes of affection. You weep because the body is cold and dead and clay-like. For the soul you do not weep, but I have comfort for you. That very body will rise again. That eye will flash with genius again. That hand will be held out in affection once more. Believe me, I'm speaking no fiction. That very hand, that positive hand, those cold, clay-like arms that hung down by the side and fell when you uplifted them, shall hold a harp one day, And those poor fingers, now icy and hard, shall be swept along the living strings of golden harps in heaven. Yes, you shall see that body once more. As the poem goes, their inbred sins require their flesh to see the dust. But as the Lord their Savior rose, so all his followers must. Will not that remove your tears? He is not dead, but sleepeth. He is not lost. He is seed sown against harvest time to ripen. His body is resting a little while, bathing itself in spices that it may be fit for the embraces of its Lord. And here is comfort for you too, you poor sufferers, you you who suffer in your bodies. Some of you are almost martyrs with aches of 
one kind and another, lumbagos, gouts, rheumatisms, all sorts of sad afflictions that, that flesh is heir to. Scarcely a day passes, but you are tormented with some suffering or other. And if you were silly enough to be always doctoring yourselves, you might always be having the doctor in your house. Well, here is comfort for you. That poor old rickety body of yours will live again without its pains, without its agonies. That poor shaky frame will be repaid all it has suffered. Ah, poor slave, every scar upon your back shall have a stripe of honor in heaven. Poor martyr, the crackling of your bones in the fire shall earn you sonnets in glory. All your sufferings shall be well repaid by the happiness you shall experience there. Don't fear to suffer in your frame, because your frame will one day share in your delights. Every nerve will thrill with delight, every muscle move with bliss. Your eyes will flash with the fire of eternity. Your heart will beat and pulsate with immortal blessedness. Your frame shall be the channel of beatitude. The body, which is now often a cup of wormwood, will be a vessel of honey. This body, which is now often a comb, <coughs> out of which gall distills, <coughs> shall be a honeycomb of blessedness to you. Comfort yourselves, then, you sufferers, weary languishers upon the bed. Fear not, your bodies shall live. But I want to draw a word of instruction from the text concerning the doctrine of recognition. Many have puzzled themselves as to whether they will know their friends in heaven. Well, now, if the bodies are to rise from the dead, I see no reason why we should not know them. I think I should know some of my brethren, even by their spirits, for I know their character so well, having talked with them of the things of Jesus and being well acquainted with the most prominent parts of their character. But I shall see their bodies too. I always thought that a quietus to the question which the wife of old John Ryland asked, Do you think, she said, you will be know me in heaven? Why, he said, I know you here. Do you think I shall be a bigger fool in heaven than I am on earth? The question is beyond dispute. We shall live in heaven with bodies, and that decides the matter. We shall know each other in heaven. You may take that as a positive fact and not mere fancy. But now a word of warning, and then I have done with this part of the subject. If your bodies are to dwell in heaven, I beseech you take care of them. I do not mean take care of what you eat and drink, and wherewithal you shall be clothed, but I mean take care that you do not let your bodies be polluted by sin. If this throat is to warble forever with songs of glory, let not words of lust defile it. If these eyes are to see the king in his beauty, even let this be your prayer. Turn off my eyes from beholding vanities. If these feet, excuse me, these hands are to hold a palm branch, Oh, let them never take a bribe. Let them never seek after evil. And these feet, if they are to walk the golden streets, let them not be swift after mischief. If this tongue is forever to talk of all he said and did, ah, let it not utter light and frothy things. And if this heart is to pulsate forever with bliss, I beseech you, give it not to strangers, neither let it wander after evil. If this body is to live forever. What care we ought to take of it, for our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost, and they are members of the Lord Jesus. Now, 
Will you believe the doctrine or not? If you will not, you're excommunicated from the faith. This is the faith of the gospel. And if you do not believe it, you have not yet received the gospel. For if the dead rise not, then your faith is vain and you are yet in your sins. Yes, the dead in Christ shall rise and they shall rise first. Next time we talk of the resurrection of the wicked. I want to thank you again for being here and remind you that this uh, series of lessons is available to you on uh, online. Just go there and, and look up Spurgeon's Gems. It's actually, uh, I'm looking for the actual website again. I've, I've done this a hundred times. Perry Boardman's Spurgeon's Gems.com. Spurgeon Gems. Don't put the S in the middle there. Spurgeon Gems. Dot com. Uh, no more audios there. These are all written sermons on that site. Thank you again for being here. We'll talk again real soon, Lord willing. Bye-bye.